Welcome to the Hobcast, a weekly podcast from Hobeck Books, an independent publisher of thrillers, crime and suspense novels. Each week, we'll take you behind the scenes of what we do, the challenges and the triumphs, the bumps and troughs of building a new creative business in this pandemic world. We'll hear from the people who make all this possible, the authors, cover designers and editors, and we'll have expert insights from our guest star interviews. Nothing is off the agenda on the Hopcast from Hobeck Books, as we combine trad values and an indie spirit. Hello and welcome to the Hobcast Book Show. My name is Adrian Hobart. My name is Rebecca Collins. And this is episode 148. And together the two of us run Hobeck Books, which is a UK independent publisher of the following four genres. Mysteries. Suspense. Thrillers. And crime. (laughs) Welcome to this week's show. We've got two people we're speaking to in separate interviews and there's a reason for this. Uh, the reason is that we published a book this week. We and did, indeed. With yes. Hilly Barmby. And best Served Cold. Indeed, Best Served Cold. Like and ice cream. So we wanted to have a little 15-minute chat or so with our, one of our latest Hobeck authors. And yes. um, so you've got a feel for what we've been doing with Hilly. And she joined us from her home in Spain. I know, lovely. It, it was, was quite, super hot, apparently. Yeah, so it was quite a cold day here, wasn't it? So we were sort of sat there and um, mm. I think I had my Doctor Who scarf and my um, throw thing with fur. Yeah. <laughs> we looked like Eskimos compared we to... We did, we did. Now, our, our second interview, I'm going to give you a clue in a moment as to the location of where she set her book. But you have to give me a, a, a couple of seconds when I fiddle around. Now, that is intriguing, my... isn't it? Do you think so? Yeah, so she's not. she doesn't live where her book is set, does she? No, but, but she, she spent her childhood there, yes. basically, every time she went um, on, ho- it's on holiday. holiday. Yeah, because yeah. her family, family from her there. wider family lives so, there. So here's the clue. Okay, you ready for this? I'm ready. I know what it's going to be. <laughs> Ah, it's going to be an advert. That's what it's going to be. Oh, for goodness sakes. Honestly, what are you like, YouTube? You can't you can't click on anything and it starts up immediately. You have to sit through a crisp commercial. Yes, or um, where some sort of web um, website provider I tend to get. <laughs> oh, God, yeah, absolutely. Right, here we go. I have to say, TV themes do not get any better than Bergerac. Do you know what immediately comes to mind when I hear that? It's it's the smell of Sunday dinner. Yeah. <laughs> it's homework. Yeah. <laughs> it must so, have been on a Sunday night, was it? It was a Sunday night, yeah. it was. Yeah, absolutely. So um, Bergerac theme, set on Jersey and the adventures of Jim Bergerac of the Bureau des Etrangers. Uh, but anyway, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking to Jackie King, who is a Somerset-based author who's written a, a fabulous uh, children's book, which is set in World War Two on Jersey, which, of course, was occupied by the uh, by the Germans. And, um, and it draws on the experiences of many people that she met um, and family stories as well from that period of occupation, which was a very dark period for the island. Yeah. Um, but we will uh, we'll delve into that with Jackie it's, it is a, a little bit later. It is a very interesting interview. It is. 
Okay, uh, we're going to keep the news brief because otherwise this episode is going to end up being sort of three hours long. <laughs> Not quite that long, but and yes. Um, so you have our principal story this week. Yes, so a couple of weeks, well, more than a couple of weeks ago, a few months ago, we talked about the founding of the Small Press Alliance, which was a group of fairly well-established independent publishers. So companies such as Arenda, uh, Jacaranda, Fairlight Books, um, Cambry and Legend Time, so, and Muswell Press as well. So mm-hmm. quite well-known, but very successful small independent presses, So, which is all well and good. But there's been another um, independent press gathering, and this is the Indie Press Network. So this is a new network formed by um, a guy called Will, Dan- Will Dady, sorry, of Renard Press. Now we have crossed paths with him briefly. Yes, um, he's a member. His company is a member of the IPG, same as us, and we did a sort of presentation to booksellers. That's with, right. Yeah, yeah, I remember now. And yeah. he was he did that as well. So. Um, it, he's the sort of the idea behind this, and um, at the moment it's got ten member presses. And only five minutes ago, you've expressed an interest in joining, which is which is brilliant because um, you told me it's only is it twenty pounds a year to be a member? That's right. Yeah. Well, that's the publisher rate. Yes. Yes. Um, okay. And right. um, <laughs> it brings a number of benefits uh, potentially. Yeah. It has its own shop front for recent titles from its member book so that that was the first thing that i spotted but um you know it'll be good to be part of it you know if we can join it um a fellowship of of fellow-minded professionals in the industry because at the moment there's nothing for us at that level and you have to have fewer than five employees so there's a couple of things that attracted me to this one was that that you have to have fewer than five employees well there's you there's me um Mm, the cat the cat yeah um and also um the there's no uh limit on where you're from where you're based and all the 10 presses that are in it already are from uh liverpool the midlands so it's not just london yeah i think that's really important i think that's fantastic geographical so we'll we'll tip off um elaine at zuntold as well about it about elaine so if you're listening elaine go and have a look yeah that's exactly the sort of that's the sort of network that we were hoping to to establish and so if there is one ready-made we're all up for it. Yes, indeed. As, we know. need it. We do. Because we sometimes we do feel quite isolated, don't mm. we? And, you know, the, the, when we come across a problem, it would be great if we could just call on someone and say, look, we've had this issue with whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. How, you know, and we've got lots of things that we can offer as well in terms of what we've done. Yeah, um, and the podcast as well. So, you know, we can have... Uh, members come on the podcast yeah so that so is something that Hobart will be about it. yeah I'm, I'm glad you spotted it because um <laughs> that's that's terrific and i think that's something that we can we can contribute um quite considerably to you know not least because we have a short story competition that we run in henshaw yeah so yeah. if we could get some more publicity for that through this and that would be brilliant because that's one of my jobs with henshaw, well also we it? might discover the authors that suit other publishers as indeed. a result of it indeed yeah so lots of things. So uh, I've got a little fun story um, to complete the news section later on. Let's do it at the end oh. of the theme because no, it's... I don't know what this story is. No, you haven't. You haven't heard it. Um, so uh, it's um, you know. But I think we'll crack on with the the interviews. So uh, our, our uh, principal guest this week, yes, Jackie King, is Jackie, and uh, Jackie is a retired primary school um, educator. Um, worked all over the country. And indeed had a childhood, sort of peripatetic childhood 
going all over the the world with her father being in the Navy. Yeah, so they they had a spell in France, didn't they, in Paris? Yeah, but the principal thing that I got from the conversation was that she had a very outdoor um, sort of... uh, childhood where you know the, the screens weren't a factor so it was about you know catapults climbing trees all the sort of activities that that are um that seem as from a bygone age almost yes and i was actually talking about this with um my youngest toby on the way to golf today <laughs> and he said uh, we're talking about lockdown and he said one of the things he gained from lockdown was that i would let him go off on his bike by himself that's right yeah um, and so we we talked about that sort of thing with Jackie, didn't we? The sort of freedom to just go off by yourself or with your friends and explore the world. Yes. Or your immediate world. <laughs> that's right. And that's spirit that enters her book, uh, Cake for the Gestapo. Mm, it's uh, a great title. Yeah, it is. And um, that is... Which yeah, we talk about. <laughs> but we talk about and how provocative that is in, in a way and um, how she drew together the experiences of the people of Jersey to create this uh, incredible book which again is published by Zuntold and Elaine Bowsfield who was a guest of ours not so long ago and I've just been narrating for so um, great to talk to Jackie King. Well what a lovely pleasure it is to speak to Jackie King. Thank you for joining us. Lovely to see you too and meet you. <laughs> Welcome to the uh, the Hobcast Book Show you're speaking to us from your home Castle Carey in Somerset which is a lovely lovely part of the world you're gonna go gooey aren't you? i am i get i get i used to get very excited because my, my grandmother lived in in Krukern, which is not so far away and i mean somerset's quite a big county but it, it is one of those places where my heart would leap when i saw the somerset sign oh, as a as a kid i love that though when you're driving somewhere as a kid or going on holiday mm. and you see that sign for me it was welcome to wales that would do that for mm. me. And, and for me it was um going to, it's going to devon because i was born there and also arriving in jersey which is yeah which is pertinent to the book we were going to discuss and your 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 work but it 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 is you know so i mean that's part of the the charm of of what you've been writing about in a sense is recapturing that sense of wonder that you get as a child that as adults it's tempting not to connect to it but i I mean still get it but the two of us are big kids and and how about you i mean does that inner child still very much live within you Oh, completely, absolutely, all the time, yes, yeah. Always, we had such fun as children, and I think I I hope I've still got that, just enjoying everything. But definitely, as soon as I arrive in Jersey, I just think, oh, I'm home. You know, everything comes flooding back. And it's the same with Devon, actually, the bit, bit split between the two. And someone said, West Country in Jersey, let's say. Yeah, there's a, there's a, I don't know, an ambience and a feel that is unique in those parts of the world that, that, that sort of a core that sort of runs through. I think when I, whenever I go back to the West country, something within my soul stirs. That's a, a lovely thing to say. I think I'm the same as soon as I, when I'm crossing, crossing the sea. So going from um, either by plane from Exeter or crossing by ferry, there's a little group of rocks with a, lighthouse on called the caskets and my father used to lift me up when we went over by the mailboat when I was a little boy, little girl and she used to hold me he used to hold me up and say look there are the caskets and we'd all think yes we're nearly back and then we'd arrive in the islands and all our grandparents and everybody would be waving at us from the quay it was just magic really so lucky to have had that experience over and over again 
absolutely so it's the fact that your grandparents were there and that your holidays were spent in jersey yeah all our holidays were spent that we could we could manage it was an expensive business then though so once or twice a year but it felt like the biggest the best and the most wonderful time going to jersey we thought about jersey in Afterwards, we thought there's another year to go before we go back. And it was very big for us because my father was in the Navy. So we moved a lot. And so Jersey was our, our solid place. Of course, yeah. Well, I think everybody needs that, don't they? They need somewhere yeah. that they... Yeah. Yeah, so it's more home than home was to you in a way then. Yes, we had lovely home. My mother always managed to make a home with nothing. Always sort of a bunch of flowers on the table. Same old pictures and off we went to another place. Like every, <laughs> every child of service people. We were born, so I was born in Devon, then we moved um, to Hampshire, uh, to Surrey, then we moved to Paris, then we moved to Hampshire, then we moved to Cheshire, um, continuously moving. And there was that thread of Jersey holding us together, really. Yeah. But how was that in terms of, you know, schooling and friends and things? Were you, did, did you take, I mean, did your parents take advantage of the the generous support for private schooling or was it where you moved around from from village to village and and you know no we didn't go to village schools because it was very difficult really because you never knew where we were in in paris we had my brother went to the local primary school in in paris which was incredible at five there he was in a quite a tough little primary school he's a bilingual he's bilingual he's you know in french and, and he can speak many languages but that was quite something and we lived in a great big house that the Navy rented for us. Um, so, and I had a governess then. And then I went from school to school. I suppose I just got used to it. I can remember every part of my life by different uniforms. You know, that period I was wearing grey and green. That period I was wearing brown when I went to the local convent. And um, that period I was wearing navy blue and red. And then it was navy blue and red again. And then it was navy blue and purple. So, you know, people say, how can you remember that when you were eight? I say, well, I was wearing brown and gold then. (laughs) (laughs) Colour is very important to children, isn't it? I think they do have very vivid colour memories. They do, yes. Yeah. I think I I went to about 10 schools. Gosh. So, But then we see see we had the Jersey friends who were our, our key friends and still are, really. When I go back, there they are. (laughs) So I was lucky. Yeah. Now you had a, an outdoor childhood, it seems. Very, very much uh, so. Yes. You know, without the access to screens and all that sort of thing. So, what did that involve? What sort of scrapes would you get up to? And what sort of activities? Because I, I had a fairly, <laughs> I had, I, I, I too had a fairly outdoor. I mean, it wasn't well, exclusively, but, but you know, playing in the woods and going to a, there was a pillbox that I was particularly fond of on the oh yes, Cambridge. Okay, by the railway line, and this was oh, the yeah, London yeah. to Manchester. <laughs> Oh, did you? Yes, playing by the railway, putting pennies on under the train so that they would flatten out. So yeah, you knew the train was coming and you put your pennies there and then they they turned up sort of that big, you know. Oh, that was great. Well, I had an older brother and um, you don't, when you're a younger sister in those days, you didn't want to be a sissy. I mean, I wasn't the kind of child who wore pink. You know, I, I had sort of dungarees and uh, we had bows and arrows that we made, um, catapults, um gang warfare really and there was an old underground shelter when we lived in Hampshire and that was um that was uh, rather smelly and somehow 
that was where the prisoners were put. I mean, it was constant, really. We, we really were looking back on it. We were quite, quite tough, really. Cycling everywhere, off for the day, take a jam sandwich. Very free. Yeah, I, yeah. to a degree, I was too. Yeah. Were you free? The children have their adventures. There's no, there's, the parents are just in the background. They're just shadows. Mm. <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was lovely. And I think, um, you know, Dad was away for a year. He had to go away in the Navy for a year. And um, that was the saddest time of my life when he went. But somehow all children like that, you just put your chin up and you have to, you know, girl, girl guide, sort of smile and sing under all difficulties. But I really missed him. And we wrote to him and it must have gone off in the Navy in the bag, the mail bag that went for the Navy. I can remember embroidering the hanky with palm trees on because he, he was in the Pacific at that time. <laughs> and um, And then he wrote to me and told me that he'd been playing chess with the sultana of Zanzibar or something and I was <laughs> very excited by that so you know we did grow up and it must have been very hard for mum but like all navy wives she just got on with it really mm. it yeah they a lovely childhood really lovely you know it's magical there was a lot of music in our house because she was in very musical and when she was 10 she when I was 10 she bought a piano uh, for five pounds and spent 20 pounds which was a huge amount and had it restored and every night when I went to bed I could hear Chopin being played it was lovely I was so lucky and we sang as a family there was yes in my extended big extended family and dancing wow I'm sure was, you know <laughs> no that's beautiful um I was so gonna say, talking of catapults I read on your website you know how to make a catapult I do teach children yeah. how to do that yeah it's quite easy <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting. We had a we had a period at our school. We were talk, discussing this the other day. The sort of the times we got punished at school, and um, and talking with your kids. Yeah, because my 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 three boys love to hear about when I got punished at school because they cannot oh, imagine it. Oh. And so, if I say I had detention for something, they go, "You did that." <laughs> yeah, but we had a period. We had a period in. Um, I guess I was about thirteen, and my class became obsessed with catapults, and essentially i mean it looked like downtown beirut by the end of <laughs> because there were chunks of plaster missing and the the big the big issue that the school had was that this is our classics department um they had this very expensive uh map of the ancient world which was hanging you know over the blackboard and it was one of those fabric yeah. roll down things that you know i don't know how much it cost but it was a expensive thing it was peppered with holes oh, from the catapult festival that had been going on just before the lesson. And it was the only time I ever had a detention was a class one. Um, and I was a goody really? two-shoes. Yeah, I was really quite oh, good in two-shoes. on a regular basis. No, no, I was... I was, I was rather good, actually. I mean, I, did, I got into trouble once for playing the piano. You weren't allowed to play the piano. And there was a piano in the classroom. And they caught me in a wet playtime. And they had this horrible business. There was a, there was a staff room. And um, there was a lawn in front of it, and you had to walk round it in your break if you were in trouble. They didn't do detention. It was called walking round. And you had to walk round and round in your school Mac while all the staff you thought were staring at you. They weren't, actually, but, you know, that was horrendous. I remember that. Yes, isn't it funny? Because that feeling, and it, it, it's, I've been um, narrating another Zontold author's books, Kate Wiseman's um, Gangster yeah. School. Yeah. And there is this just, I've just done a scene where 
the head teacher's eyes bore into somebody <laughs> who's <laughs> spoken so out. And and she's captured beautifully the sense of humiliation and shame that someone can be reduced to in an assembly by being Which picked out. Which is than anything else, isn't it? It's that thing yeah, and I just thought, gosh, that really has taken me back. And, <laughs> and it, it, it's, it's marvellous when you read a book like that, uh, perform it in my case, um, and just get transported back. But I guess that in a way, when you wrote, um, you know, Cake for the Gestapo, um, it's uh, you must have drawn on all of those childhood experiences at creating I think that, you do. that world. You do. You don't really mean to, but but they and some of your friends and family come into it. You don't invite them in, but they're there. It's very very strange, really. I think the boy Clem, who's the oldest, he. I, I've got a friend who advised me a bit on you know how to use guns and things, but he's very much a Jersey man or a Jersey boy, how I imagined they were, with a little bit of a friend in it, but but they just arrived from somewhere. And it's interesting. And I, I think the headmistress thing, or the, the head with Kate, is fascinating because you never forget that. I remember being marched down the corridor by my collar with this, my headmistress saying, A-W-K-W-A-R-D, awkward. My favourite word for girls like you. You never polish your shoes. The terror. <laughs> I'm glad you did that voice because it's very similar to the voice I'm using for the head. Um, the Guardians, you know, that kind of feeling. But, you know, that I remember at my prep school, some of the, uh, the, the, the ladies of the teachers we had were fire-breathing dragons. I mean, terrifying. miss it. Mrs. Revel could shred you in seconds. I mean, I never wanted to cross it. I did once with some French homework that went disastrously wrong. And she just ripped into me for about 10 minutes solid. I, I mean, it took me a month to recover, I think. It's quite something. So when you... I don't when you think came... I've done that as a teacher. Because I, I did... Somebody said to me, uh, you, you only shouted at us once. Then you started laughing and said you were sorry. So I was—I don't think I was scary enough. Actually, I wish I had been a bit, a bit tougher, really. Well, I mean, but you... I think a good teacher is one they don't have to resort to shouting because everyone's I never did. enjoying your lesson. Yeah. And <laughs> I sometimes used to lie down on the floor if they were being noisy, and they <laughs> say, "Are oh, you all right?" And I say, "I'm just very tired of all this noisiness." And then they say, oh, "Sorry, it would be fine." Oh, that's a clever way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, once we had a teacher, she just walked out. Because she couldn't, she just had enough, and she walked out, and we were deadly silent. Then, what do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> no teacher, horrified. Yes, kids, they've no idea. We wrote to a letter and said, "Please come back. <laughs> we're sorry." So my brother, was, my brother was very good. He was always inventing things and making. He's an engineer and a sailor, but now, but but you know, in, in his grown-up life, he was. But as a child, he 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 was. He always made aeroplanes, and he um. You tried to put lighting in my doll's house when he was quite young with, I think it, I think it was a single light bulb attached to the mains and things like that. But he, he was inventive. And the boy Ginger in my book is not at all like him because he's a trumpeter and a musician. But his inventiveness must have come in through from memories of my brother. Mm. Yes, yeah, so it's drawing characteristics yeah. of different people, isn't it? Mm. Yes. Mm. So the inspiration behind it, I mean, when... This is um, your book, A Cake for the Gestapo, which is quite a provocative title for mm -hmm. um, 
in 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 a way because you know let's be honest the Gestapo did some unspeakable things across Europe and in Jersey yeah um and that's so that's quite a provocative title but in terms of the inspiration behind it it, it you know I get the impression I've never been to Jersey and it's it's on my bucket list I suppose but it the, the occupation hangs very heavy still doesn't it, it resonates yes. It does very much so, and um, I, I, my grandparent, my grandparents on one side were there the, for the whole of the duration of it. Right. And two of their sons went abroad. That was my my dad and fought, and my uncle Jack. My uncle Jack died, and my uncle went. My dad went through all the huge battles, so the Battle of the Atlantic, all the big convoys. He was only a very mm-hmm. young man. You know, he lost friends on the hood. So, yeah. But they had no idea what was happening to their children. They were stuck in the island, grandma and grandpa, on the Jersey side. And there was no communication. We read cross messages every six months or something, and they were delayed. So they were, for five years, they they were didn't know what was happening, really. It was very hard for them. And um, I love the Jersey character. It's so strong and witty, and yeah, they're always witty at, at other people's expense, and they bash on, you know. I mean, no one's perfect, you know, things did go wrong, but most of them were so heroic, I think. You know, they were, I, I heard, I grew as a small child, I, when I was born after the war, I do want you to know, but I could, I could, you know, I would sit on the floor and you'd hear old aunties talking about, you know, oh, you remember that day, you know, in that Jersey accent. And, and um, the stories were there, uh, fantastic. And my other side, my mum's side, had to leave the island because my Grandpa was working in the war office and my mum was working in the war office as well. She was at Blenheim Palace with a spy catching lot. So, but when they came back to the island, all the furniture and everything had gone. It's all been burnt for fuel. So I knew all these things, but I never meant to write about them. I wanted to write other things. Then I met a man who, who said, no one knows our story. You know, they think we're collaborators or we're this or we're that, but they weren't there. And he said, I had a lot of fun when they were there. You know, I teased them and they were all right to us and I stole things from them and I made tents and I used my catapult on them and it was a laugh, but I didn't know how dangerous it was. And then he said, my my mum, at the end of the war, she, you know, she said that he said the Christmas before we gave each other pictures of apple pies we'd cut up from a magazine because no one knew what they were like. And he said, we had nothing. But we tried to keep laughing and we tried to keep cheerful. And then he said at the very end, on the Liberation Day, my, I was given a piece of white bread and I thought it was cake. And my mother burst into tears because she'd never been able to give me cake. And then he, he said, and he was quite tearful, he said, will you tell my story, our story? So I said, all right, and I will. And then I remembered all the other stories. And I felt it was so important because the kids in my school in Somerset had never heard it. Of the occupation they didn't know really well they didn't know anything about it and I felt really determined to try to tell it the best way I could but it was very difficult it's very hard didn't want to get it wrong mm. no I mean I don't think my boys know anything about it no I mean it, it, you know it's become you know uh, better known I suppose recently in terms of um you know the the uh, films and things but it, mm. it, it but it's one of those shameful secrets isn't it that that post-war britain i think tried to forget that it really had turned i mean churchill just said well you know 
it's not a priority we can't do anything about it and um there was a feeling of abandonment for the people of jersey yeah i mean i you know i wasn't there but i mean i think it was complex you see if they had stayed there they would have been flattened the whole island would have been wrecked so i suppose it was very difficult you know they must have felt abandoned i suppose but you know it's a complicated business. Um, in the, they were bombed um, just before they were occupied because I believe, and I may be wrong here, the potato lorries were going to the harbour and the Germans who were circling the island thought that they were potato- that they were tanks and they'd said, get everyone out or we will bomb. Well, that's roughly what happened. Yeah. Carefully, you have to get all the facts right. And I tell you, when I wrote this book, I wrote every single fact down on wallpaper and I hang it, hung it all around the room to make sure I got every fact right, every bit of weather right, every tide right, every farming process. You know, would it, would they have dug potatoes on um, March the 1st? No, probably not. March the 15th, maybe. You know, I was very, very particular. I know the Jersey my Jersey relations, you know, they say, oh, that wouldn't have happened. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's a good, that's an interesting way because we've got um, one author who writes historic fiction, haven't we? And we've had people who've written historic crime fiction on the podcast before. And we always ask them, you know, how Mm. do you do your research? How do you make sure you get all the facts right? But you're the first one who said you stuck it all over the walls. (laughs) I had um, five bits of wallpaper, one with um, the facts, the dates, um, one with the weather and the moon, state of the moon, because you can't go fishing in the moonlight if there wasn't a full moon that day. People will remember, you know, Jersey people know about the tides, especially my family who live in the southeast, which is a fishing community. Mm. They then you always know the tide. Oh, it's a full moon, it'd be a big tide tonight. You know, we can go prawning, we can go low water fishing. Oh no, it's not a good enough tide. People know that tides. I wrote. Um, I had another strip for my my dad's cousin, who's a farmer. And she had a farming diary, which she kept illegally in a biscuit tin out at her farm at St. Peter's on the other side of the island. So I had all the farming events lined up with with the dates. Then I had all the events of my story lined up. So I had wallpaper lining, lining wallpaper, you know. Mm. Yes. I was was really nuts about getting it right. Now, is that liberating or constricting as a writer? Well, I... I had loads of stories that I'd, I'd interviewed quite a lot of people, not enough people. I mean, there are archives, there are masses of stories everywhere. But I abandoned quite a lot of them because I thought, otherwise I'm writing, I'm not writing fiction. I've got, I've got to somehow make a story out of all these background facts. And that was really hard, actually. So I had to then start dropping the stories and just using them a little bit, mm. just making sure the weather was right. <laughs> So I think it's a bit constricting. Yes. I've just written another one, and I'm not sure. I haven't been quite so ridiculous. Right. (laughs) It comes with experience, doesn't it? Yeah. In in terms of, um, you know, the moral issues that that you must touch on in a a book like that, um, it's difficult, isn't it, in the sense that it is a children's book. You want the, the... the impact of the occupation to land for younger yeah. readers. What um, lines did you take in terms of things that you could have included that you didn't for taste and decency side of things? Or did you decide that, you know, it had to be um, authentic? 
in that uh, sense? I tried to make it as authentic as I could. I didn't want to go on about, I mean, some story, some people have written all sorts of things that have really upset them. The average Josie person who I would say, you know, 90% of them were heroic. Well, I don't like, I don't like the way that the negative is being pursued of late, but that's perhaps because I'm a Josie person. You know, I feel very strongly, I want to defend my, my people, if you know what my people sounds a bit, you know, but my family and mm. where I come from, because, you know, I know that, for instance, my great aunt used to feed the prisoners and with potatoes, she used to kneel down, do up her shoelaces and tuck a boiled potato under a hedge for a starving Russian prisoner. And she could have gone to concentration camp for that. Well, I think that kind of heroism outwits or outdoes any of the failures. And we're all human beings. Mm. None of us are perfect. What would I do if I was faced with someone terrifying banging on my door? I'd probably, you know, and a fear of going to prison camp, I'd probably lie or, or fail in some way. So I think we should celebrate the good things. You know, the boy in that Clem, he loses his temper now and then, but he realises his that he shouldn't. You know, in the end, he doesn't shoot the Gestapo man, you know, that they've taken out in a cart pulled by a pig they've trained out to yes. water to dump him at a tower. He realises he realizes that he would have gone too far. So I've tried to show that the extreme reactions we have to temper, I suppose, and I've tried to show that in keeping your integrity and your sense of humour is the thing we got to try to do, which is, that's what I aimed for. And your sense of love and your sense of joy and fun in life, you know. And I also tried to show that I don't want it to be full of Nazis, you know. It's the German soldiers were homesick, it, you know. They'd love mm. the most of them, but there were a few bad apples. And the cake for the Gestapo was a very difficult title for me because there's, there's a there's a chap in jersey called bob Swear who rescued a lot of the russian prisoners found in safe houses he was very brave and he said but there weren't any gestapo on the island and i said but there wasn't any cake either so <laughs> and uh, my agent ben he he was keen on me using the word gestapo because he said it instantly puts it in world war ii but i said i'm not sure if children know what that is and actually now i'm in, in schools they very few of them do know mm. I don't know what you think of the title. It's 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 slightly plagued me. I'm not sure. That's interesting, isn't it? Because, um, yeah, yeah I, I mean, I think people of our generation would assume that everyone yeah. would know what Gestapo is, but actually, yeah. children. Well, you know, we were. Um, it's interesting, is it? Because we grew up in a period in the 70s where, you know, every other drama seemed to be set in World War Two. Our grandparents. Yeah. Um, yeah, lived through it. Whether it be Colditz, yeah. Secret Army, Tenko, yeah. you know, yeah. uh, Sunday films, there was always a war film yeah. um, on the telly. And and all our play as a child, younger than you, I mean, oh. older than you, but it, it was all bang, bang, you're dead, you know. It was, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and I've man, had that older absolutely. brother as well. So I used to play a lot of war games with him. I had little mm. soldiers I'd put all over the sofa and have battles yeah and we 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 read commando comic and uh i mean it was it it, it was dominant uh, totally dominant really. i don't think my brother was so dominant like that because he's so interested in making things all his magazines are about how to make things it's incredible <laughs> what he did but it was dominant definitely yes 
and that is the that is a culture and a an experience that we share as a as a generation mm. our generation and indeed people who who grew up in the immediate aftermath of the war still have but it's it is collectively it's so it's, far back in history yeah, now it's sort of with faded in with that generation that actually yeah. lived through it and fought through it dying you yeah. know um fast disappearing she would say it is it's almost an area whenever i discussed it at work um in the bbc it mm. was the younger generation just used to switch off and go oh look you know i don't really want to hear about that stuff and I find that very distressing. Yeah, but my, I do. When I think of my two uncles, my uncle on one side died in uh, on in India on the road to Burma, you know, and I, and I think of dad and his courage, you know, and yeah. then my other uncle who came through Dunkirk, you know, it affected him very badly, and he, you know, he, he cried about it, you know, the things he'd had to do, and but and he made up. He sort of, you know, became a surgeon and did so much for people, and I. And they were so brave; they didn't complain about it. You know what they'd been through. Mm. So much, and I, I've put that goes into the book as well. I find myself with, you know, the child. A child will have a father in the navy, or a, fa- um, a brother who's died. You know, has made the older boy Clem angry because his brother's dead and won't be coming back, and he's got the responsibility of the farm, and that's what happened. And the little girl, her mother's they're separated because they, the the mother's in England. And people were separated for five years and they kind of kept cheerful, you know, smile and sing and keep going. And actually, I find when I go into schools, children are very interested now. They mm. want to know about that period. I mean, in Jersey particularly, but also I've sort of been in schools in Somerset and in um, Norfolk and places. And they are interested, actually. Mm. Yeah, I think mine are. I mean, I've got my grand- grandparents, like, newspaper clippings and, and yeah, ration yeah. books and all those sort of things and, and they do yeah. like looking through them and then but it is a terribly that. long time ago if you think of me as a, as a child victorian times seemed to me years ago but you know they 80 before 80 years before i was a child queen victoria was alive you know and that seemed <laughs> to be in ancient history so of course they will think that Mm. As it still stayed alive because of course they've got german bunkers all over the place i was going to say i mean that's one of the things i know of jersey is the extraordinary level of um you know sort of atlantic wall defenses yeah amazing yes yeah amazing absolutely extraordinary and i and that's and i have to say that as a sort of um amateur historian i suppose i love visiting <laughs> <laughs> yeah. those sort of complexes i find you, it fascinating you, you will you would find it amazing if you went there and actually i was so lucky because i'm very lucky that elaine published my book i feel very lucky all the way through but i um i did a book signing on top of a bunker which was opened and it was on a cliff and i had my hair standing up on end like a sort of crested grebe and i was signing books and wind whooshing along and it was <laughs> So fascinating. Lots of children came, lots of people, and they had World War II vehicles. But I'm not a World War sort of person, really, but, but I got in, I mean, I didn't ever mean to write about it. It's not my thing. I just want to write about children laughing, really, and mm-hmm. having adventures. But it is, it is fascinating, and it is the more I talk, give talks about it, the more I find that people are very interested. Yeah. 
yeah, I just think that the the, the the sort of wider culture has sort of turned its back on it to to, to mm. a degree. I disagree. Yeah. Well, I, okay, fair enough. I mean, you know, well, that's just yeah. that's just my. I just don't think it's as 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 front and central to the national life as it was. And okay. and and no. Remembrance it Day. Be, it can't be though, can it? Really? No. no. And indeed, we have to Remembrance change. Sunday was overshadowed this year, obviously, with yeah, all the yeah. political shenanigans. But <laughs> well, but, yeah. but it has become, you know, it's it's increasingly difficult, I think, um, to give that event relevance. Can I, can I just tell you what my boys' school did? It actually brought a tear to my eye. Okay. So what they do, um, the, the, they've worked out that 80 of their former students were killed in the First and Second World War. Yeah. So every year they read 12 stories about from the 80 people, like little sort of vignettes oh, of their lives. Yeah. And so if they're at that school for seven years and they stay in the sixth form, they get to hear about everybody. Basically. Yeah, okay, yeah. And they uh, they have this special assembly. They have a special assembly on Remembrance the Friday before, mm. and they, they all have to wear poppies. They do actually get punished if they mm. wear a poppy, but then they plant them in the in the front garden of the school they all plant their poppies, mm. and it did. It made it brought tears yeah. to my eyes when my mm. youngest was telling me about this. You know, he was quite emotional as well. And I thought, that's that's keeping the, yes. the, the memories and the legacy alive for the for those young people, and that being able to relate to people who'd been to their school who'd just gone on to gone off to fight yeah. and not come back. And that's it. It's not coming back. I mean, I think in, in Jersey they have a wonderful liberation celebration in May. It's absolutely fantastic. And all the old people who, who are veterans, very few of them left now, wear their best clothes, you know, and the, the buses come down and young people and old people come. And there's a, a young girl who sings. There used to be someone called Sadie who always sang um, Beautiful Jersey in Jersey French. And this young girl sings now, she's retired from it. She sings Beautiful Jersey in Jerrier, which is Jersey language that they used to speak, you know, in the old, very few do now, but... Every, most people know that and she sings it and honestly there's not a dry eye in the house it's fantastic and so that they still remember so it's it's, it's well done it's not sentimental it's it's great actually yeah so you've i mean this book has obviously resonated with with generations and um since it's been published in 2020 um what about your your writing career is this continuing what, what have you got yeah, planned so well, I've just written a sequel to it that Elaine's got at the moment called Lobster Blue, which is about an escaped prisoner. And I I wanted to show some of the heroism of Islanders trying to hide prisoners. Um, but I, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, because they don't know about the Eastern Front, so I wanted to show about the, the um, escaped prisoners from the Eastern Front. But I, I made him into a ballet dancer and got him dancing when he was feeling a bit better. So I enjoyed doing that. Um, I've I'm always writing little poems, um, little bits of verse, which comic verse, which I enjoy doing. Um, I've, I'm writing a book about a beaver for a friend who's introducing beavers into Britain. And oh, wow. she likes wind in the willows. And so I'm valiantly trying to write something from Mr. Beaver's point of view, which is quite fun. <laughs> and I'm also writing um, a book for someone about called granny manners but we'll see how that goes brilliant busy then oh well that's wonderful <laughs> well we'll see we'll see won't we Watch it's fun doing it either way isn't it yeah no that's fabulous right well let's we've reached that point i think where okay. we yeah. delve into 
the uh, inner psych of me. Yeah, basically, <laughs> with Rebecca's random question. So one of my many jobs is um, editing, copy editing. And I was thinking today, I was editing this book. It's a book about um, communicating research in a um, um, readable way. And I was thinking, I love semicolons. So my question to you is, what is your favourite piece of punctuation and why? Oh, my goodness. That is very, very difficult. I think the three dots. Oh, ellipses. Ellipses, yeah. I think that's very useful when you're having a think. Yes. In fact, you can answer the random question with, let me just think, dot, dot, dot. Yes, let me just think, dot, dot, dot. Not very keen on exclamation marks. No, I'm not. No, I don't think anyone should be. No. And oh, yes, when when you get an email with 200 of them. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That's very annoying, exclamation mark. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's it. No, they are the they are the the hammer blow of punctuation, aren't they? Exclamation marks. But what is that really obscure one? That's like a uh, it's like a question mark and an exclamation mark. A cedilla. That's no. it. That's it. Yes. I hope you're impressed with that. Yeah, very. I, it just came to me, and I thought I can't remember what it's called. <laughs> <laughs> what do you use it for? I can't remember at all. No, I can't remember. No. I, I quite know. like a circumflex with a little like a little hat. Yeah. They're not really used much in English. No, no, no they're not. Ever. No, hardly I... ever now. Um, I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I think I'm with you on the ellipses. I mean, I, I use, I am a terrible one for dropping dashes into stuff. Oh, M dash. M dash. Um, uh, no, N dash. N dash. Sorry, okay. yes. And you know, having to dig that out of the special characters bit in Word or in Google Docs when I'm when I'm writing. No, you don't have to. You just do space N dash space character, and it does oh, it automatically. Could have saved me so much trouble. <laughs> Uh, hours doing that um <laughs> you know so it, it, it is and I, I i think the humble comma is under misunder is misused or well, underused now i think that quite a lot of books and this this includes hobeck authors those listening um <laughs> who don't actually put enough i mean you can be technically right about not using a comma but it doesn't sometimes the sense of the sentence doesn't work if you don't insert a comma change the sense quite very very yeah it's a very useful tool for being you know when when i've read something and i've gone and especially as a narrator and i'm going oh well actually what they meant to say here was this is a parenthetical bit of the sentence but they haven't put a comma in because they're against using commas where they can (laughs) avoid it uh and i've had to redo the sentence to try and get that sense in um at least I think that's what they're supposed to be doing. But then if you don't put commas in, you don't know. Um, and it can make some comma. sentences very ugly if you don't use commas. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm a comma addict, actually. I yes. I too. I love commas. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's quite vital. So thing. isn't this wonderful? Um, we've come back to write. Thank you for that question, because that's a great one. <laughs> it's uh, one of your, one of your peak random questions fascinating i mean it's part of the job isn't it and i'm I'm always learning as well you know i've been editing as well as publishing whatever for over 20 years but i still have to look things up sometimes <laughs> yes, I, it, I think it's it, it is it's i i think that's great to do that because it's very easy to get the wrong sense in a sentence isn't it mm. like a little missing little person in the form of a comma or whatever yeah <laughs> And there's yeah. a colon. I like semi- that's why I like semicolons because they're a bit more powerful than the comma, but not as powerful as a full stop. They're sort of that's what I used to teach. Their place. 
use a semicolon. <laughs> well, I, I, you know what? When we look at submissions, when the, on the occasions we've had them open, and if someone's used a, a semicolon in the right place, I think, yeah, they're, yeah. they're a good writer. <laughs> yeah, you know, they've got respect, or indeed a, a colon and, and, you know, the head of a list. When people use semicolons, when they mean a colon, like before a list, I've seen that so many times. I think it's a colon. It's not a semicolon. You don't use a semicolon there. <laughs> how are, how are you with split infinitives? Well, to boldly go. Um, but now I do. I turn a blind eye often because it's I, changed. Things have really, changed. You can be too picky. I, I think. Yeah. I think they have their place in speech because people are going to use them. And you know, if it's dialogue, um, you know, it's probably authentic. Yeah. But. Uh, yeah, I did, it doesn't slap me in the face too much, but sometimes it, it does. If I read it in a newspaper, I think, "Ooh, that's very, very odd." And then I think, "Yes, I know why." <laughs> right. If it's knowing and a, and, a, and a nod to something, then then sometimes that that works. But I think um, with newspaper and in fact any form of journalism, and you know, I've I've been in the front line of that stuff for for years. Um, I used to despair because the nature of text journalism and we're talking about the evolution from when we had CFAX mm. on, oh, on yes. teletext yeah. um, that brought in a certain group of words which have become part of journalese yeah and and the nature of it was that CFAX was a really difficult thing to write for um, and the reason was that your headline had to fit a certain number of characters. So you think about Twitter and you had 140 characters or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And that was difficult enough when people were tweeting and, mm-hmm. and they extended it. But if you're trying to write a story where you actually had, I can't even remember how many characters it was, but you had your headline had to be about, well, I don't know, 20 characters or something. Mm-hmm. They started to use things like the the, the word up became a verb. Oh, yeah. You know, so upping bids. Yes, just because it was it was quicker than writing some some proper word. Progressing and, things. Yeah. So now everything swoops. Um, you know, the 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 bookseller is an absolute m- misery for this. Snaps up, uh, snares, uh, all these yeah. sort of ludicrous journalese verbs. Actioning. Actioning. And um, I find it really distressing. So you hear about uh, in, in, in broadcast journalism, you know, so the stuff has crept in from business speak. So upping bids is is something. Bottom line. Boosting. Uh, thinking going up to the plate. Stepping up to Ooh. the plate. Uh, blue sky thinking, you know, all that stuff. Blue sky thinking. Oh, dear. Yes. Yeah. No, there's some horrible, horrible phrases. And, um, and I, I, I up in your A game. Well, I, I, I waged a war. I waged a war on all this stuff um, very, very badly and, you know, unsuccessfully. Just watch MasterChef. They use them all the time. Yeah, they, they do. do. Yeah. In fact, we play MasterChef bingo sometimes. Oh, do you? <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. no. <laughs> it, 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 you get an instant jackpot if you get um, Buttery Biscuit Base from Greg Wallace, because he's obsessed with Buttery Biscuit Buttery Base. Biscuit Base, Ooh, yes. I suppose everyone <laughs> has to have a sort of, um, what sort of thing, a little a little line of their own, don't they, perhaps, mm. do you think? Totally. Yeah, totally. we all have our foil, like, not foil, foggy bottoms, bottoms and all that. Yes. Yeah. But verbing nouns, that is a, that is a good thing to 
find irritating. Oh, totally. It's like totally. my middle son hates it when people say, I'm going to Photoshop it. And he says, Photoshop is not a verb. <laughs> oh, well done. That's good. You've trained him. <laughs> yeah, I know. He's, 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 uh, he's he gets a... very upset with that. Yeah. Yes. He's the grammar Gestapo in the family. Um, but uh, <laughs> the other, the other, if I can pull out the, the one that, that um, upsets me most, um, big ask. Oh, yeah, yeah. oh yes really? it's a big ask i, I mean, it's a big can't ask, but can you make dinner tonight <laughs> bear it and and you know i think um yeah anyway we on, we've, on that note yeah on that note we'll, we shall we shall wrap things up uh jackie where can people find you online um unfortunately i'm not really very adequate about online i'm on um various things on the internet sort of amazon reviews I know I meant to be on Facebook and all these things, but I'm not. <laughs> so you got JacquelineKing.co.uk uh, yeah, as your website. Yes, got... That's my website. Yes, we shall put that link yeah, so together with this, this podcast. Yeah, so that's good. I have got. I do need to update the web, the website very much. <laughs> I feel a faint feeling of guilt about it, but when I start to think about all the things I should do online, I start yawning, and then I don't action it. No, it would give everything a boost, they? and it is uh, as, but it is a big Actually, ask to do the website. I said that ironically. Step up to the plate. Step up to the plate. I know. Yes, <laughs> I think someone's going to help me do Facebook. You need to give it one hundred and ten percent. Now that drives me. Yes, one hundred and twenty. <laughs> <laughs> it's nice to Jackie, meet you. It's been such a pleasure. Here. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> I've enjoyed meeting you very much. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Nice to meet yet another kindred spirit and in a part of the world that I absolutely adore, which yes. is Somerset. It's a great county. Um, it's one of those counties which is on the up, I think, in many ways. Well, what our listeners won't know is that we actually talked to Jackie for a total of two hours. Yes. So we recorded. That's so... a fraction of the conversation. <laughs> and it was, it was, and I, love, I love that we do that. We meet so many people who we may or may not cross paths with, but Jackie was one of those we probably wouldn't cross paths with because she, she's a children's author. Yeah. Um, but even before we started recording, we were talking for about 45 minutes mm, before we were, you said, yeah. we'd better press the button. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, it was a sort of warm-up act. Yeah. But it, it's nice to put people at ease. And yeah. um, I think, you know, we all enjoyed the experience, as indeed we did when we spoke to the wonderful Hilly Barmby, who is a new Hobeck author, one of our uh, recent signings. And her uh, novel for us, she's an experienced author, we ought to stress, but... Um, Best Served Cold is uh, a brilliant standalone. Yeah, it's 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 the sort of books that you get sucked in very quickly, and mm. it's very character driven. And I think um, quite a few generations, including my own generation, can relate to the um, what happens in this book and the relationships. And so, yeah, it's a great read. Absolutely. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's speak to Hilly herself, Hilly Barnby. Hilly. Welcome to the Hobcast uh, for this bit. Um, how does it feel to, with the new book out? How do you how do you feel about it? Oh well, so excited! And um, I did drink far too much carver last night with a little bit of pateran thrown in, which is uh, basically pink gin. It's lovely, oh, but not this morning. <laughs> yeah, so it's um, yeah, it's wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Taking advantage of where you are, of course, in Spain, but. Why is pink gin famous in Spain? Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, <laughs> you know, sort of uh, enjoying the the opportunities. But uh, the book itself, 
is is not set in Spain. It's set in Brighton. It is. Yeah, uh, I was there for like sixteen years. In fact, I think it's more eighteen years. Um, and it's it's such a cosmopolitan city, but loads of people come from London and they just do the main drag and that's it. And they don't get to see all the kind of hidden nooks and crannies. Uh, And it's an astounding place. It's really beautiful. I mean, I miss it. I miss it so much. But obviously I've got all this. I've got my, you know, olive trees, my orange trees and endless sunshine, (laughs) which helps. Sounds a real drag. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I know. Sorry. (laughs) Well, look, I mean, we're talking to you in November. So Brighton in November, from my memory, um, if there was a storm, the waves could be monumental it looked like they're yeah. going to drown what's left of the west pier um yeah. the deck chairs would be strewn everywhere i mean it, it can be quite a bleak place so I like bleak. but is that yes. i mean are we are we reflecting how the book comes across is it is it is it sort of a wintry brighton that we're talking about it it is it's it's set uh the few weeks leading up to christmas um uh, lily who's the the you know heroine or whatever in it she's um a children's book illustrator, and for her, just like for me, you know, the the tramp along the beach in in winter time is is the thing that energizes her. So you know, it is. It's it's a it's got its own stunning beauty in in winter time as it as it does in summer. Mm. Um, I agree. I I I like Brighton in the winter. We've been we went yeah. there on New Year, didn't we? New Year's no, it was New Year's Day. Yes. And we so a mutual friend of ours, Vicky. We yes. went to visit Vicky Lovely. on New Year's Day. So Brighton on New Year's Day was quite interesting because it was a bit like, you know, too much carver and pink gin. It was a bit like, <laughs> uh, but <laughs> we we hadn't done anything on New Year's Eve. So we were like, yay, <laughs> we're on the beach in the cold and the wind. Yeah, it's beautiful. It really is beautiful. And and so, a few of the reviews have already said, well, you know, I've never visited Brighton, but I feel like I, I know the city now just from my descriptions, which is fabulous. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really good sign, I think, because yeah. writing about place and then readers being able to feel the place, I think, is um, a big plus. Yeah. And I felt the same way when I read it, because I love Brighton. We don't go very often because it's a quite a trek from here. But yeah, of course it is. I just, it's just entering that world, isn't it, in your head as a reader. You're entering that world and you can be there and you can picture it. It doesn't matter how well you know the city, because I don't know it that well, but I felt... That I got to know it a bit better through your descriptions of the streets and the atmosphere and the cafes and things like that. And yeah, thank you. <laughs> I mean, there are you talk about nooks and crannies, and I, I that's the thing I loved about it. I mean, I worked there and lived there. Um, so I mean, for people who aren't familiar, what, what areas do you put a spotlight on? Is it is it the lanes? Is it Kemp Town? Is well, it Kemp? Yeah, Kemp Town. Um sort of heading down towards the, the sea, uh, Lewis Road and everything, um, and the, the beachfront cafes. But it has changed a bit because I, I wrote this a little while ago and having gone back in, in the summer, you know, I haven't been back to England for seven years, so I went back and, um, and boy, is it, it's changed. It's, it's stayed the same but radically changed. I suppose that's, that's true of any city, really. Yes, it's I still think got you're right. soul, do you think? It's still got yeah. core of what makes Brighton Brighton. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the nature of, of the of the city is that it keeps evolving and yeah. You know, specific businesses that that are sort of landmarks 
some of them survive for a long, long time, but others will come and go quite quickly because it, it does follow the fashion yeah. fairly, fairly quickly, doesn't it? And yeah. um, in that sense, it's a bit like Camden, which can change dramatically from year to year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you live there, then then you don't notice the changes so, so radically. Um, but it's just the fact I haven't seen it for seven years. It's quite a shock, you know, but a pleasant shock as well. So in terms of writing that book, um, I mean, you're casting your mind back a bit to when, when you wrote it. Um, what was your aim when you set out? Did you, do you have a plot? And a, are you a planner or are you more of a, I, a pantser? No, no, I'm not a pantser. I, I'm terrified of, of that. <laughs> um, most of this book is, is stuff that happened to me. So I've interwoven my own you know, experiences and my own stories. So all the places um, where she's lived or is living, um, they're all my old places, you know, both in London and in, in the Brighton sections. Um, half of the experiences are mine. So all it is is kind of like me <laughs> doing a kind of memoir, but but <laughs> passing it off as a novel. So the, I, I've already said to a few people, you have to work out which bits are actually real. I see. Now you said that, I'm thinking that. Hmm. Mm. I, <laughs> I should mention few at this point. Oh, yeah. <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. So, now, yeah, because I can believe I can believe that that actually happened because that, that that's happened to few people, hasn't it? So, yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. It's uh, shameful, but <laughs> there we go. Mm. And it, going back over those experiences, I mean, some of them are negative, presumably. Um, did, did it open up memories, um, feelings, I suppose, um, old scars? Yeah, no. I, all these things happened a long time ago. You know, it's not so long for, for Lily, but I'm an awful lot older than, than Lily. So, <laughs> you know, it's in the past, whatever. Um, I use a lot of, of like my memories and stuff and my experiences in all of my books because you you know, I'm writing about something I know, but it's there's no there's no like whoa or anything. It's it's just using those memories to help me write, it's, and then interweaving the story around it. It's interesting you say that because the the Jackie King, who we have on the podcast as well, she her book is set in the Second World War, and she is not that old. <laughs> But she, when, as we were talking, she realised that a lot of the characters and the and the sort of scenarios were from her own experiences. So it's obviously yeah. it's a very natural thing to do as a writer. I think so. I mean, you know, one of the things they say is write what you know. Mm. Um, but it's, I don't know. I think I think if you have a basis, then you you can then build on that basis. Mm. Absolutely. But obviously, the the ending and everything didn't happen to me. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, not the ending. Sure, not the ending. No. <laughs> yeah. In terms of um, Brighton being a place to base a story, because we have talked about Brighton so. I mean, it, it is the place that we've talked about most on this podcast. Yeah. Extraordinarily. If you did a word search, it would come up as the biggest word, wouldn't it? It would. It would. It really <laughs> oh, would. Yeah. Word cloud, but it, there's something about it for, um, you know, crime fiction, psychological fiction, 
just seems to be the right place to do it. It's all, you know, the ley lines seem to get across when it yes. comes to Brighton. Yeah, because mine, um, you know, previous books, I've had the Brighton-London connection as well because they're the places that I've spent most of my life. Mm. Yeah, and there's a there's a sense that, I mean, with Brighton, there's a there's a grandeur that's faded. There's an element of grime. There's a sense that a lot of bro- London's problems get exported to Brighton and then settle there for the rest of their lives. <laughs> it feels like, yeah. you know, yeah. all of that, all of that, and and then there's also lots of glitz and glam around Brighton yes. as well. Yes. So it has that sort of showbiz feel. Uh, it it is it is amazing how I mean that's how it used to make me feel as a reporter. Be you know yeah. treading that beat all the time. Yeah. So presumably that's what feeds into to to what you're writing there. Yes, I mean it's it's all the elements. You know, it's not it's not a closed off community. It's there's everybody there. You know, and and you can bump into everybody along one street alone, let alone you know the rest of Brighton. Obviously, I'm talking more about the kind of you know outsidey areas, not just the main drag from the station to the beach. You know, Kemp Town. Mm. Uh, you know, Seven Dials and all the rest of it is, is especially Kemp Town. Now, I, I love Kemp Town. It really is yeah. special. Yeah. Yes, I mean it's the it's the. <laughs> I took my son there once, and um, uh, we we were sort of wandering around at night and found this extraordinary bondage shop with the most extraordinary gimp outfits that I've ever <laughs> seen in my life. And I didn't know how to explain it to him. because gimp outfit? You know, the sort of thing where you stuff something in your mouth and it's like, you know, mass, oh, like latex. Black, yeah, kind of thing, yeah. Black latex. Oh, yes. Yes, yes. I mean, you know, <laughs> there aren't many places in the country that you can just bump into that. <laughs> gimp yeah. down is it. Amsterdam. Maybe it's a bit like Amsterdam. Well, it is a bit, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So how, how do you feel, you know, now it's out, um, how are you feeling about it? You know, yeah, well, it's publishing Boxing Day today. Oh, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, okay, I would like to um, to thank Sue for being such a, a fabulous editor and picking up on all the the weird stuff that always slips through. And you think I thought that made sense, but of course it doesn't. <laughs> and obviously Jane Matt for for I love that cover. Yeah, I'm I glad we didn't go with the other ones. I oh, I just think that, it's a colour, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, it just really it's in my head. It was like, yeah, that's that's it with the little tweaks and stuff. Um, and I I think it's a fabulous book. <laughs> Me too. I've had my imposter imposter syndrome up down up down up down, but when you when you get really good reviews coming through, and you think, yeah, you know what? I think I can write. <laughs> yes, you can. Of course, yeah, well, but we know you oh, can. Well, thank you so much. But and I love it. It's an honour to be your publishers for this. And oh um, well, I'm hoping there's going to be loads more. <laughs> <laughs> well, so do we. Try. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, I've I've really enjoyed the journey, and it's it's you know to have look, I've got it. <laughs> I've been I've been um, sending them off to my beta readers uh, around the place and thing, and sending them off to to like I said, the lady in in the United States. So. Um, she's been such a support. You know, I'd really like to to send to everybody, but that's not really possible. Yeah, I feel exactly the same. Yeah, we get requests all the time. Yeah, my first question is always, "Do you have a Kindle?" Yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. I know. I mean, I'm not even going to open it. I mean, even for the ones that I've signed, you know, when you try and sign without actually 
lifting the cover up because it's like I don't want to damage these yeah. I don't want them to look like they've been opened you know when whoever <laughs> I've given it to you know can open it and see the you know two so-and-so lots of love blah 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 but you know it's like I want them to be pristine yes yeah oh, yeah that's <laughs> I know that feeling it's interesting when you go to signings and just how rough and you know when they've when the the author has done the first 50 and you're the 50 oh, first <laughs> They're sort of going, yeah, whatever, yeah. What is it for? All right. <laughs> yeah, yeah I can imagine. Well, I can only imagine because I obviously I haven't done it, but I'd like to one day. Yes. You said think... that. Lisa Jewell did very well, and I was her last customer. She was lovely, yeah. <laughs> no, she was. She was. Brilliant, but, yeah. Uh, look, Hilly, it's, it's such a pleasure to catch up with you, albeit yeah. briefly, for the Hobcast. And, um, you know, on behalf of Rebecca and I and all the people at Hobeck, thank you so much for uh, having faith in us and for bringing oh. the wonderful book to us. No, I think it's vice versa. So thank you. It's been brilliant. And yeah, I'm really enjoying it. But I've, I've got to lay off the patch around. <laughs> Looking up, <laughs> it's fabulous. And it's it's this beautiful pink gin that all the builders drink. It's oh, really good, yeah. you know, and they're all there with their beautiful pink whatever. And it's like, because we just said, what is that? So pacharan. Pacharan. That'll make Christmas go th- thoroughly well fantastic (laughs) congratulations and uh, thanks for joining us yeah it's been brilliant thank you we're so proud to be hilly's publisher and um, we're looking forward to uh, what's next well this already in the pipeline yes so yes there is a a hilly two hilly (laughs) two the hills have eyes or something anyway uh great um uh, addition to our team yeah she's uh, lovely hilly yeah i hope you're listening (laughs) yeah uh you know uh fantastic so um the story i wanted to bring you as a sort of by way of not quite the closer of the program but um one that was worth waiting for okay go you'll, for you'll it. love this you'll love this i'm sure you'll love this right an incredibly overdue library book has been returned oh one of those yeah right a hundred years <gasps> after it was oh borrowed in fact over a hundred years the book, Famous Composers, was last borrowed in 1919 from the St. Paul Library uh, in Minnesota. <laughs> uh, t- so this book, uh, Famous Composers and Exploring the Lives of Composers Such as Bach, Beethoven and Mozart, the tome, the tome rather, turned up while a Hennepin County resident was sorting through a relative's belongings the library checkout slip shows it was last borrowed in 1919. And, um, That's incredible. It is. And, and did so, they take it back to the same library? The, well, the St. Paul Digital Library coordinator, John Larson, said it was the most overdue book he'd ever seen returned in his 25 years working for the library. What was the fine on it? Well, uh, the, 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 mayor, <laughs> the, the mayor has got involved, and I'll tell you about this in a second. Um, so... Uh, Larson investigated the, uh, this is uh, John Larson, um, investigated the book's markings and found that it had been first entered into the library's catalogue in 1914. And that was the year before a fire at the old market hall where the library was housed, destroyed 160,000 books. At the time of the fire, nearly a third of the library's books were checked out, Larson discovered. And... um, the where are we are we here at St Paul's Mayor Melvin Carter joked in a tweet on Saturday that there would be no fine. 
the library, like many across the country, stopped charging late fees in 2019. Oh, okay. Oh, lucky them then, because that could have been like tens of thousands, couldn't it? Yeah. Well, uh, the book's future is now uncertain, it says. Uh, Larson has said that he, he doubted that it will go back into circulation because of its delicate condition, but he expected the library to hang on to it. It's reached a point where it's not just an old book, it's an artefact, he said. Yeah, yeah, me. absolutely. So when you were at university, did you often yeah. have library finds? Well, I had a, I had one that nearly bankrupted me. Actually, um, <laughs> it was ninety-seven pounds. That, yeah, and we're talking nineteen ninety-four. Yeah, but like the that. trouble was that you see, I, I, I borrowed seven pounds. Well, I borrowed it for about six months, and <laughs> the, you know, it would have been more, um, but. Um, so I decided to go in and say that I'd lost it and that was going to be cheaper to get a replacement book at £97 because it was an antiquated um, oh, book no. on classical history that was fairly rare and they had to go and hunt one down. And um, they said, well, we're going to charge you what it costs to, to find another copy. So it was £97, but it would have been about 150 So did you lose it? You did lose the book? No, I just held on to it. So have you still got it? Somewhere, yeah. That's probably quite valuable. Yeah, um, but it was the it was the book that was the basis of pretty much my professor's key research, or you know, uh, so it was invaluable to invaluable you. to me, and um, you know, it didn't harm me that it nobbled the rest of my you are colleagues. Very naughty, though. They didn't get access to it, so yeah, um, I, I you know, as you can imagine, with me, I I am just hopeless at getting books back in time. I'm you know. Doesn't shambolic me. at all in, in these in these regards yeah no. and do you remember when we were at university they used to have what were called temporary reserve books with a little paper slip yes and you could only have them for 12 hours or something that's like right that. <laughs> because they were in in high demand because of pro, you know people had the same essays to write and yeah like that. so you'd go home with this book and think i've got 12 hours to write this mm. essay and read this book well isn't it amazing i mean you know it is i'd love to we ought to do some more with libraries because we have done obviously the special collection at Exeter University for Agatha Christie. And we've uh, made a couple of appearances at, you know, events in libraries. But just how much the library situation has changed. I mean, clearly in America and in, in the UK, um, particularly, there have been big cuts. But the fact is that the consumption of what libraries have traditionally stocked has changed considerably. And particularly around audio. Yeah. So, so audiobooks on CD and tape, you know, <laughs> are no longer that. But in America, you can borrow, you know, a Hobeck production of a particular book. You can pay, uh, I think it's a dollar fifty or something, to, to borrow that book. Um, and the library pay um, to, to be able to offer that as part yes. of their catalogue. So, you know, it's a very different world. And, of course, libraries had a resurgence i think when it was when computers became a you know a, a, a factor of life and people couldn't afford to have their own computer and they still provide a massive resource for people who don't have access to the internet can't afford it um and i i was you know it was interesting cause i'd love to go back to manchester central library because i went back there um on the day that I had my big wobble a few weeks ago, and um, I was blown away by the number of people in the local history section researching <laughs> their families and the number of librarians on hand to help people research their family histories. It was incredible. 
Yeah, well, libraries are still very valuable, not just for borrowing books, but uh, writers, researchers, students. So not, not just students at university, but, you know, students. And they, you know, most libraries seem to have a good cafe nowadays. Um, yeah. <laughs> or a lot do. I mean, certainly Manchester Central Library does. I mean, it's an amazing well, they're, building. They're, they're now much more pleasant places to be. When we when mm. we were very young, it was very much the, you have to be absolutely quiet. Yeah, and, they and, were, yeah. You know, but... I used to spend a lot of time in the university library in Wolverhampton just a few years ago. Mm. And um, one of the things that me and some other students did was do some painting on the walls to make it a more pleasant um, yeah. environment. Um, yeah. And they have uh, sort of slightly more social areas as well where you can consume coffee and bring your sandwiches and sit on mm-hmm. comfy chairs as well as the quieter, more studious areas. And I, I quite like that sort of, you know, blend of different environments that you can choose from and... Mm. Which is, you know, if it's a good library and it's, an, you know, it's 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 fascinating to see how they've developed. But equally, quite a number of clothes, especially the small ones. It's the small ones, isn't it? It suffered. So yeah. when we used to live in Charlbury, um, the library was was just sort of a single room in um, a building, and it was only open for about two hours a day. Mm. But the, the boys loved to go in there. Yeah. But I, I would be very surprised if that is still open. I, I, yeah, I'd be staggered. Be staggered. Well, I think we um, have come to uh, an, towards the end of the, the program. Um, we ought to mention who our guest is next week. So our guest next week is one of those surprise guests. Um, it's when I put out a tweet and say, "Does anybody mm. want to come on the podcast?" Now he's called Stephen Pigeon. Yep. And I'm going to leave it as a surprise as to what Stephen Pigeon does. Okay. Well, we better find out, do some research between now and And we then. will before we talk to him, of course. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> okay. Well, look, it's been a real pleasure to have your company yet again uh, for this podcast. Um, we really enjoy making the Hobcast Book Show, and we would love you to, if you get a chance, subscribe to the podcast so you get it every week as we publish it on a Monday. And uh, possibly, you know, just spread the word a little. I would also like to uh, give people a hint that we've got some special podcasts coming this uh, over Christmas and New Year. Yeah, we're just uh, putting those together yeah, so at, the, at, the, at the moment. Watch so. this space. Yeah, plenty more. So we'll, we're talking to Stephen Pigeon next week and we'll update you on all things that we've been up to and industry movements and whatever's going on, <laughs> uh, of course, in next week's edition. I'm Adrian Hobart. I'm Rebecca Collins. And we... Thank you very much for your company, and we wish you a wonderful and creative week. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Hobcast from Hobeck Books with Adrian Hobart and Rebecca Collins. You can find the show notes at our website, www.hobeck.net. You can also use the exclusive Hobcast discount code for any of the products at our Hobeck online store. Just enter the code HOBCAST20 for a 20% discount. Don't forget to subscribe to the Hobcast and feel free to contact us with any feedback. Until next time, remember our motto, Trad Values, Indie Spirit. Hobcast.